Welcome to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast. A series of honest conversations about opportunities, challenges, and joy in ministry today. These episodes are inspired by interactions with ministry leaders from across the country. As they explore possibilities, learn from broad perspectives, take risks, and cultivate candid discussions that generate disruptive creativity. Hi friends, this is Adam Borneman with the Ministry Collaborative and Today, I'm really excited to be with my friend, Terrence Smith. Terrence is the Chief Purpose Officer at Bolst Real Estate and a colleague and a friend and a clergy person and um, so many other things that I'm happy to talk about with him today. Terrence, thanks for being here. Thank you for allowing me to be here, sir. I am elated to be here. Me too. Terrence, why don't we start by telling us a little bit about what you're up to these days with Bolst Real Estate and how you got there. For sure, man. So Bolst Real Estate is a benefit corporation. So it's founded in Georgia. And in Georgia, you can actually select benefit corporation designation for your business, which basically means that you exist as a business that is for profit, but you exist to do good. So Bolst was founded on the idea of doing good business, but also doing good in our communities. And so my role there as chief purpose officer really is to make sure we do what we say we're going to do. There are a couple of ways that we do that. Primarily, Our hope is to help with reducing homelessness through partnerships in Atlanta, as well as making housing industry for everybody. For so long, a lot of people got left out or are getting left out of the housing industry, whether it's you own your own home or it is the industry as a whole. So buying and selling, contracting, a variety of other ways. So we're trying to make sure that there's some things that we do to make that whole industry a lot better. And so the way that I got involved really was through conversation. There was a conversation between mutual friends. My name came up and the guy reached out, the CEO reached out. And so as he reached out, he began to talk through what they were planning on doing and what they were doing already. So Bolst is a startup, been around a little over a year and a half at this point now. But at the time, they weren't even a year old. But what he was saying was because the whole premise of Bolst was based on this idea of purpose, that a cornerstone role of that organization would be the chief purpose officer. So as we talk more, as he was sharing more about his vision and his hope for what Bolst would be, the more intrigued that I became. Yeah, that sounds like really interesting work, not least because, you know, I have such a growing list of colleagues, pastoral colleagues, clergy colleagues who are finding spaces like this to follow the leading of God's spirit in ways that they probably didn't anticipate but having discerned that it seems like a good space to do it. And and that really is the case. It's quite a long and growing list. And to me, that just says a lot about the world that we're in and how the face of ministry is changing, how our sense of vocation is changing, and so many other things associated with that. So I'd love to hear from you where you fit into that. How is your sense of call to ministry changing, if that's even an appropriate way to describe it? Or how do you see this not just your job, but just the time of life that you're in right now as an attempt to follow the spirit as best as you can? I think that's a great question. I think there's so many answers to that one question. I think in order to do that, it's important for me to reflect on just the last couple of years. So I feel like 2020, there were so many things happening at one time, whether it was the racial unrest coming to the surface so that the whole world could see it, the pandemic itself, and then of course the political season that was happening. And I feel like during that time, there were also things going on inside of me. So things that had been going on Mm -hmm. for quite some time, this stirring, if you will, of what is happening. Is this growth? Is there more? Is there another avenue, 
is my call evolving? Is it shifting? But I didn't, I wasn't planning on making any moves. I was kind of just in a space where I was satisfied with where I was or content. Content is probably the more uh, appropriate word there. Content. I felt like we were doing good work. I felt like there was many people that we had an opportunity to touch and lives we got a chance to touch. But when I got this phone call, it kind of shifted a lot of things. So all the things that were already brewing inside of me, all the tensions, all the frustrations, this seemed like an evolution to the call. So part of my story is that I never wanted to be in ministry, man, like ever. (laughs) I thought it was whack. I thought it was just nothing I wanted to do. And so back around 2011 or 12, I began really feeling the call to go to seminary, which was not a thing that I was wanting to do at all. So prior to that, my experience was my grandfather was a Pentecostal pastor. I really didn't necessarily love all of my experiences at church. And I began to also see the disconnect between the way that people acted inside of the church building versus the way that they acted outside of the church building. And that, for me, created this tension. And it really built this whole thing that I I wasn't really sure I wanted to be a part of. We ended up going to uh, another church and got a chance to be able to learn more about who Jesus was and gave my life to Jesus. So 2007, 2008, just fast forward and clearly, 2009 at time, I lost my job. And when I lost my job, I wasn't really sure what to do because this was a time where jobs weren't plentiful and unemployment was really kind of strong. And so during that season, I made myself get up at 4 a.m. every morning. So I got up at 4 a.m. every morning and then I would do my quiet time. I would also print out resumes and then I would hit the pavement to try to find a job. This was an everyday thing. And somewhere in that time, I began questioning the version of Jesus that I'd received. I felt like I'd received this version of Jesus that was watered down. And it was kind of like a punk Jesus, not punk as in rock and roll. Punk as in like, I don't really want to mess with him. Like (laughs) there was this version of this turn the other cheek Jesus that was meek and mild Jesus that uh, we'd been presented. And so for me, I began wrestling with how do I take this Jesus to my boys back where I'm from, right? Like, (laughs) this ain't gonna work. Like, this Jesus, this meek and mild, turn the other cheek, this passive Jesus, this ain't gonna work. So there has to be more to it. And so it led me on this journey to really begin to study Jesus the man. And so I read all these books, took these post-back classes, and learned that Jesus wasn't a punk. In fact, (laughs) if he was, they wouldn't have killed him. So all these things began to click for me, and I believe that that was used to create this insatiable desire to know more. And that knowing or the desire to know more, interestingly enough, sent me to seminary, which eventually, while there, had no idea, no clue what I was supposed to be doing at the time at all whatsoever. Did uh, an internship my first year, realized that wasn't it. Second year, had to do it in the church. I thought it was process of elimination. I Google searched college ministries in Atlanta. One came up at a very large church here in Atlanta. I went, met a guy, told him where I was from. Turns out the director of that program was from the same hometown as me. We connected, did an interview, told him I needed an internship and I didn't, you know, I wasn't asking him to pay anything or pay me. I was going to pay to be there. All I needed was for him to be able to uh, pour into me and answer questions that I had around Mm -hmm. this whole ministry thing. He agreed. I joined. I go on staff at this church and I met on staff for eight years. So like my journey itself 
is a little erratic. It's kind of a little bit all over the place. And so for this to be the next part of my life, I think it's telling. It's just an evolution of the call. Yeah, and I think that erratic journey, as you describe it, can also be really instructive for folks. Um, you know, I think a lot about so many of my colleagues across the country who, you know, a lot of them don't have that erratic journey. And so there's a lot of misunderstanding about those different contexts. And I'm wondering, what is your sense, you know, especially, I imagine going from, say, Pentecostal to Candler <laughs> to, you know, large non-denominational world, like, what do you often think, you know, other pastors, other Christians misunderstand about some of these contexts? Like, what's been valuable about that erratic journey? And um, what have you taken with you? You know what? I think the thing that I've taken with me throughout all of it is the value of hope. Because every context that you mentioned, usually there's some form of hope being offered. There's this variety of experiences I've had in, in these different contexts. And I think that's it. It's hope. People come there looking for hope. Mm, and I think wow. that is the thing that binds them all together, whether it is Pentecostal, Southern Baptist, non-denom. Now, the contexts are different. Mm -hmm. Like, clearly, one of the things that was interesting about me, uh, my wife and I at the time, the first real, like, non-denominational uh, majority white church we went to, uh, I remember the first Sunday, I was very surprised that they had eight acoustic guitars on stage. I was like, why are there so many acoustic guitars on stage? Oh there's not a bass. So there's not keys. There's not an organ. Like, there's a lot of acoustic guitars. Like, everybody's playing acoustic guitar? I'm like, man, I've been around music my entire life. I've never been in a place where there were eight acoustic guitars on stage at one time. That was my introduction to it. But different context, but hope reigns the same. It's interesting, too. I mean, you're pointing out that in occupying all those different spaces, you've also occupied very different social, economic, and racial spaces. What's something else that you've learned from being in such diverse spaces? Yeah. The first thing I've learned is that God has given me these experiences and a certain set of tools to be able to move about in these spaces. And I don't take that for granted. I don't take that lightly. I feel like every experience I've had has been another tool in my tool belt so that I can relate to others whenever we're talking about Jesus or the experience of what it means to be a Jesus follower. Differences, uh, aside from musical choices and cultural choices, being a black man in some of these more recent spaces that I've been in has, has been more of a challenge. I think that comes with the lay of the land. I think whenever you are in spaces where they are majority culture spaces, there's going to be challenges. And so the last eight years prior to this, this role that I've been in, I spent a lot of time in trying to educate and bring along a lot of whether it was staff or parishioners, about what it means to for real follow Jesus in the areas of racial justice, right? And this idea of inclusion, there's a difference between diversity and inclusion, right? Mm -hmm. Like diversity is a big thing where everybody, you don't want everybody to be the same, look the same, speak the same, but that's different from actually including those people in the decision-making and thinking from the perspective of, yeah, we could be diverse, Right. But in terms of what is our culture like, does our culture really embody the things that we say we embody? And so those have been some of the challenges that speak to those experiences in those larger uh, non-denominational spaces. Yeah. One, one of the conversations that I know you and I have had in the past, and I'm actually hopeful about this, that there is some shifting, how easy it has been in so many of those spaces to talk about well, we need to do more with things like faith and justice. And, I, and I've become increasingly uncomfortable with even that way of saying it, because I think, well, Shouldn't this just be kind of a, 
a natural expression right. of what our faith in the gospel is. So we don't tend to add that and onto other things, right? So sure. it becomes just like appendage to yeah. what we're trying to do. And I, I think you're absolutely right. I'm encouraged to see so many more of my colleagues really coming to terms with that and saying, you know, we're not making a decision here. There has to be a depth to our life together that gives natural expression to caring for the poor, practicing justice and righteousness. That These are not optional parts of our life together. Right. It's just a natural expression of what it means to follow Jesus as a community. Right. Now, of course, easier said than done in our cultural context, but I think I've learned a lot from thinking through that with you and talking more about it. And I think you're exactly right in the way you talk about diversity and inclusion. Thanks, man. To what you asked me earlier about what I'm doing now, I think a lot of what I'm doing now has been the evolution of all these experiences that I've had. And so when I think about Bolst and where I am now in this role as Chief Purpose Officer, Mm -hmm. one of the beauties has been for me that there's been things that we've actually done. So I've, I've only been there really about 10 months. And so we've established an organization, a sister organization called Bolst Works. And Bolst Works is our nonprofit arm that we are establishing. But there are three primary areas that we are focused on. One, it is making sure that people get a chance to have down payment assistance, right? Mm -hmm. So we're figuring out what that looks like. We're partnering with an organization out West to get them here uh, so that we can continue to work through that. The second thing is to teach financial literacy to middle schoolers and high schoolers. Mm. We understand the value of that, particularly when we're talking about homeownership. You talk about historically redlining and everything that comes with that. This thing has been built the way it's been built on purpose, right? It's not broken. And so our hope is to be able to do what we can to change some of these things and begin having these conversations early on because we understand the exposure and to be able to teach financial literacy, homeownership, we can change generations as well. And then the last thing that we've done is the Bolt Scholars Program. We realize that fewer than 6% of all real estate professionals are black Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. just what that means overall in terms of exposure, in terms of not just exposure, but like financially. And so when I started thinking about real estate, and the game itself in terms of becoming a professional, I started thinking about it like professional sports. And I started thinking about two leagues in particular. You think about the NBA and the NFL. Basketball is pretty easy to get good at when it comes to not needing a lot of stuff, right? Like you can have a ball and have some shoes. You can get really good at basketball. The NFL football is pretty accessible in a lot of these neighborhoods because they believe that people are faster and all this kind of stuff. And it's just a fun sport. But when you talk about tennis, you talk about golf, you talk about lacrosse, you talk about field hockey and hockey, those sports look very different than the other ones. And what I realize is a lot of it is access Hmm. because you have to have a place to play golf. You have to play, have a place to play tennis. You have to pay for the equipment and the fees, everything that's associated with it. And I began to see real estate the same way. Uh, And once we began to see that there were hurdles to jump into real estate, we figured out ways to make sure we reduce those hurdles. So uh, we pay for the licensing, pre-licensing, as well as provide a stipend and provide mentorships and relationships for our scholars to be great in this in this uh, capacity. We had about 80 applications. We chose six hmm. and we plan on doing the same program again the next few years as well. Yeah. Wow. I, I really love all of that in the first place, just because it just seems like really good work to help meet some basic material interests of the local community. But I also think just that the type of conversation that drives among churches, you know, that's the sort of conversation I want to have more and more with my colleagues, and with congregations to say, okay, we're serious about things like diversity, inclusion, and we have a lot of good intentions behind that. At the same time, there's no way we can really have those conversations without talking about things like property, 
homeownership, zoning, economics, mm-hmm. jobs, wages. I mean, there's no way to really deal with the immediate social and even racial problems we have without taking seriously all those dynamics that are in play. I'm more and more convinced that the type of work that you're doing actually holds that up and says, you know, we have to be serious about these very clear material interests, particularly among the poor and those who don't have access, you know, where that you used a lot. I'm really grateful for the work that you all are doing. I also think that not in every case, but in a lot of cases, churches simply aren't aware that there are organizations like yours that are great ways to just plug in. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate that, sir. So much more to talk about, but I want to close just by asking you, you said earlier hope, and I want to highlight that and ask you, what are you most hopeful about? Hmm. That's a great question, man. I'm more hopeful that there is going to be, or there are more people who are pastors out in the pasture. Mm. If that makes sense. Oh, I love that. And again, yeah. I'm learning this. And as you mentioned, there are many of your friends that are also learning it. I think once you've been called to be a pastor, man, you don't let go of that calling. I don't think it leaves you. Even in this corporate setting, in this corporate environment that I'm in, I find myself constantly pastoring. So it's, even mm. if it's our scholars or other people, it's there. And for so long, I was reluctant to even use that word, pastor because of the baggage that it carried, even for myself. But I'm realizing that that's a special thing. And I believe that if there are, are more pastors out in the pasture and they're being who they are, and who God has called them to be, then I think that has the, the opportunity to really not only just create hope for everyone that they come in contact with, but I feel like overall hope in our society. Terrence, thanks so much for the conversation. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you, man. Thank you for listening to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast, a project of the Macedonian Ministry Foundation. The Ministry Collaborative nurtures a national network of pastors and congregations committed to faithful, creative, and courageous engagement in their communities. Our producer is Marthane Sanders. To find out more about our work of cultivating leadership that makes a difference in congregations and communities, visit our website at www.ministrycollaborative.org.